0: Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories.
1: Hey, cardio nerds. It's Amit Goyal here with my co-hosts, Doctors Mark Belkin and Dan Ampender. This is a particularly special treat as the cardio nerds family joins forces with the Journal of Cardiac Failure, or JCF family... To bring to you hot takes from the 2022 ACC/AHA/HFSA Heart Failure Guidelines, we are so privileged to be joined by an all-star crew: JCF Editor in Chief Dr. Robert Menz, Deputy Editor Dr. Anu Lala, and Fit Editors Drs. Vanessa Bloomer, Ashish Korea, and Quentin Humans, known within the JCF family and henceforth here as V, A, and Q, respectively.
2: This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by cardio without external bias.
1: And with that, I'll turn it over to Mark, whom you'll remember as co-chair for the Critical Care Cardiology Series. He's also a fit and soon-to-be advanced heart failure and transplant faculty at the University of Chicago.
3: Thanks, Amit. I'm excited to be here with the JCF family. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Vanessa Bloomer. She's a third-year fellow in the Division of Cardiology at Duke University Medical Center. She will start as an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellow at Cleveland Clinic this July. Her research interests primarily include clinical outcomes of acute and advanced heart failure patients, including those with cardiogenic shock and those requiring mechanical circulatory support and heart transplantation, as well as health disparities and gaps in implementation in heart failure. Welcome, Vanessa.
4: Thank you so much, Mark, for that very kind introduction and for the invitation to be here. I'm such a fan of everything hashtag of CardioNerds, and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to discuss the new guidelines with this very talented group.
2: You're too kind, Vanessa. It is my honor to introduce Dr. Ashish Karan, who is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellow at Mount Sinai. After finishing his training, he will be staying at Mount Sinai as faculty. His research interests have included the intersection of heart failure and other diseases like arrhythmias and renal failure. He is passionate about transplant cardiology and mechanical circulatory support. He is also interested in novel educational tools such as using illustrations and infographics to teach cardiology. Welcome, Ashish.
5: Hey guys, thanks for the invitation. As ever, it's a pleasure collaborating and being nerdy about cardiology and heart function not failure with you guys. I look forward to our discussion.
1: Ashish and Vanessa, so great to nerd out with you guys today. I get to introduce Dr. Quentin Humans. Hugh is a third-year fellow in the Division of Cardiology at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine. He will start his year as an Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology Fellow at Northwestern in July. Hugh is passionate about health equity in heart failure, addressing the social determinants of health and diversity in medicine. Cardiologists will remember him from the Narratives in Cardiology episode in our discussion about underrepresentation in clinical trials and guidelines with Dr. Clyde Yancey. Q, welcome back to CardioNurse, my friend.
0: Hey, Amit and everyone. Thanks so much for this invitation. I'm so happy to be here and have the opportunity to discuss these exciting new guidelines.
4: Well, everyone, I have now the great honor to introduce the great Dr. Robert Menz, although I'm sure that we can all agree that Dr. Menz needs absolutely no introduction. But Dr. Menz is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at Duke University Medical Center. He is also an expert clinical trialist at Duke Clinical Research Institute. He is the chief of the heart failure section, an associate program director of the cardiology fellowship program, and is, of course, the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cardiac Failure. Over the last couple of years, Dr. Menz has become one of the people I admire most in academic medicine. He's an exceptional physician, researcher, leader, and I have the privilege of also being able to add that he's a great mentor and a friend. With over 400 publications, countless awards, we can all agree that Dr. Mentz is in a league of his own. Dr. Mentz is an exceptionally talented clinical researcher. Yet, what to me is most important, he's also an exemplary person. We are so lucky to have him join us today in what I am sure will be a fascinating and enriching discussion. Welcome, Dr. Mentz.
6: Nessa, thank you so much for those kind words. And it's good to be with everyone, uh, both the cardio nerds family, the JCF family. So looking forward to the discussion tonight and to learn from you and, and have this dialogue together. Thanks again.
5: And I have the privilege of introducing the amazing Dr. Anulala wears many hats. First and foremost, she is my fellowship program director at Mount Sinai, but I consider her my confidant, mentor, and friend. Secondly, she is the director of heart failure research at Mount Sinai, where she also serves as associate professor of medicine, cardiology, and population health sciences and policy. And next... She is the deputy editor of the Journal of Cardiac Failure, where along with Rob, she has revolutionized the way heart failure science is disseminated in our community. She and Rob don't just talk to talk, but they also walk the walk. They've promoted high quality and thought-provoking research, but at the same time have emphasized the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, the importance of language, and the importance of a patient-centric approach to science. It is for this reason and many, many more that Dr. Lala has been invited to be a part of numerous committees through various organizations, has been called to give many talks and grand rounds all over the country, and is the recipient of innumerable awards. And here she is with us again and will no doubt enrich our discussion tonight.
7: Wow, Ashish. (laughs) I feel so lucky to be able to work with you on an everyday basis, as well as Vanessa and Q through GCF and with you, Mark, Amit, and Dan, via Cardio Nerds. I'm just so proud of all of you, honestly for creating this platform and consistently upholding it, uh, and for really what it represents. At GCF, we call this type of dissemination of knowledge uh, being constructively disruptive in recognition of the various ways that we all take in information. I think the new heart failure guidelines represent a really major movement in our field, and I'm so very excited to be speaking with you all about the highlights today.
3: Thanks, and welcome, everybody. There are a lot of important takeaways from the 2022 American Heart Failure Guidelines. Let's start with A. What hot takes would you like to share?
5: So we've referenced the expression language matters a lot. Well, the new ACC, AHA, HFSA guideline uses a lot of clarifying language to define the syndrome of heart failure, the stages of heart failure, the trajectory of heart failure, and the classification. Clear language aids clear understanding and early recognition of this complex syndrome. And this will inevitably help in management. So firstly, the guideline document defines heart failure as a complex clinical syndrome with symptoms and signs of structural and functional impairment of ventricular filling or ejection of blood. Simply put, the guideline document in its definition of heart failure links signs and symptoms with an underlying cardiomyopathy. While this is obviously not a new concept, clear language helps casual readers and young clinicians like myself better understand and recognize the syndrome. And this will hopefully translate to better and early implementation of HFGDMD. But where the language matters ethos really shines through is in the stages of heart failure. Now, the writers acknowledge that the asymptomatic stages of heart failure, stage A, where one has risk factors like hypertension, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, genetic diseases, and so on, but no symptoms, signs, or structural or functional disease And stage B, where one has evidence of a cardiomyopathy but no clinical features yet, they are not covered by this definition. So are these situations heart failure? Certainly it would be confusing to call my patient with coronary artery disease as having stage A heart failure. Or my patient with asymptomatic mitral valve disease, a patient with stage B heart failure. So the writers have used clarifying language. By emphasizing the terms at risk for heart failure for stage A, and pre-heart failure for stage B. This crystallizes these conditions, but it also emphasizes the urgency of managing them. Clearer still is the language around heart failure in patients with an LVEF over 40%, a previously murky area. Now, Vanessa, I know, is going to talk more about the classification of heart failure by ejection fraction. So to just set the stage for that discussion, I want to point out that the writers have emphasized the importance of evidence of elevated filling pressures whether invasively or non-invasively, when defining heart failure, these levels of ejection fraction. So much so that the guideline document includes this in their 10 take-home points. And finally, the writers talk about the temporal trajectory of heart failure. They talk about new onset or de novo heart failure, worsening heart failure, where signs and symptoms worsen, persistent heart failure, where signs and symptoms are unchanged, and the resolution of symptoms this is where the clinical features resolve but the cardiomyopathy persists this is still heart failure and still should be treated as such and even in the rare clinical situations where the clinical features and structural abnormalities completely resolve the so called heart failure remission the writers again emphasize that the heart failure syndrome is just in remission but treatment should continue so the language matters ethos is at the heart and soul of this document
7: I think that was really, really nicely put, Ashish, as always. Of course, I think you know how excited I and the team at JCF, along with Rob, of course, is about raising awareness in this words matter movement. And these new ACC, AJ, HFSA heart failure guidelines very much highlight this. And that's really exciting to see. You've already touched on this, right? Why do words matter? Well, that's what allows us to communicate with one another. And I think Heart failure is a field in which communication is so essential for patient engagement and patient empowerment. And beyond just our patients, I think it's also really, really important and helpful for us to be able to communicate effectively amongst ourselves as clinicians, as cardiologists. I think in the field of heart failure, so often we find patients are referred too late, And so if we have this kind of nomenclature that we're able to use as tools to communicate, we're able to appeal to patients about stages like pre-heart failure, as well as concepts that you've already nicely highlighted that were first brought forth in the universal definition of heart failure last year, published in GCF, where we're really emphasizing the symptoms, the clinical syndrome that is heart failure, right? So we're now distinguishing patients with symptoms versus those without, and that's so critically important. And I think also this emphasis on nomenclature allows us to appreciate the trajectory of heart failure or function rather along a continuum where we can consider the importance of prevention, of risk factor modification, treatment for those with active symptoms, as well as those with symptoms in remission to those patients with advanced stages of disease, and then tailor our therapies accordingly.
6: Yeah, this is Rob. I would just really echo the, the nice comments from both Ashish and Anu. We've looked at this from both a journal perspective and I think the broader heart function and heart failure community really focusing on taking the important insights from the universal definition of heart failure and having that really sets a framework where we can talk about this with our patients, with their co-patients or family members. And now building upon that with these guidelines, what I really love about the document are a couple of things. One, the executive summary, which really nicely puts together these 10 points of how this can help change our clinical practice with these beautiful figures and tables, realizing just as Anu said, we take in information differently. And this provides us, for those that are more visual learners, to have a framework in our mind as we're thinking about whether it's going through the different stages, when we're thinking about the language around reduced DF, mildly reduced, preserved DF improved ejection fraction in some of these components. And then that plays directly in to the recommendations as the document unfolds. I'm sure we'll have more time to to talk about some of the specific updated language and recommendations around new therapies, including for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and other things in upcoming points. And I would just bring it together. One of the most impactful things for me is we've seen the guidelines come out. We were fortunate to have Dr. Michelle Kittleson, write an editorial that really brings this together for the practicing clinician. Because I think I would compliment the tremendous efforts of the guideline writing committee, and also think importantly for comments like Michelle's and others that really bring this together of how do I change my practice on a daily basis? And that fundamentally starts with the worst matter movement. Really.
1: Yeah, that was wonderful. And, and, you know, it really is helpful for such a comprehensive document, like the heart Fuller guidelines to we have all these adjunctive and different ways of helping us understand the guidelines. I read the the commentary with Dr. Kittleson, and it was really helpful for me personally, just to kind of understand and wrap my mind around some of the important takeaways. But yes, so language matters, words matter, and there are a, a number of examples how this becomes manifest in the guidelines in ways that really impact our care and our patients' outcomes. So moving on, V, let's keep the train going. What are your hot takes for us?
4: Thank you, Amit. Hugh and Ashish and I, you know, we're going back and forth, kind of deciding what, what takes we were going to share, and and it was hard to decide because you know overall, just the guidelines are so exciting, and it's really hard to pick just a couple a couple of takes. But if I would have to pick just a few to highlight, I I think I would choose three: the change in the nomenclature of HEFREF, the emphasis and the benefit of the SGLT two inhibitor, and given my personal passion, and I might be a little bit biased here, but I was happy to read the sections on stage D or advanced heart failure and evaluation and management of cardiogenic shock. So, you know, starting with the first one, I think the nomenclature, the change in the nomenclature was really important. And we can't really stress this enough. Like Dr. Mentz and Dr. Lala often say, you know, language matters, words matter. The classification of heart failure across the spectrum of ejection fraction is now revamped to include four categories which is heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, heart failure with improved ejection fraction, and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So this now includes two new terminologies, which are very appropriate and necessary, which are the heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with improved ejection fraction. Like Dr. Mentz nicely stated, Dr. Kittleson's editorial piece provides a very nice narrative on why these two classifications, not only were they necessary, but they're very clinically relevant. So patients with SATANs and an EF of 41 to 49% are often in a dynamic trajectory to improvement from HFREF or deterioration from HFPEF. So we needed a distinct category for these patients, which is now heart failure with mildly reduced EF. The second new classification, which is heart failure with improved EF, is also clinically meaningful. A patient who presents with an EF of 15% that improves to an EF now with 50%, for example, with guideline-directed medical therapy, is not the same as a patient with heart failure symptoms whose EF was 50% on presentation. While there is little data to guide management on patients with heart failure and improved ejection fraction, we do have the data from TRED-HS that demonstrated a high rate of relapse of dilated cardiomyopathy within six months of decontinuation of guideline-directed medical therapy. Therefore, it was recommended that guideline-directed medical therapy be continued in patients with heart failure and improved ejection fraction, including in those that are asymptomatic to prevent relapse of heart failure and LV dysfunction. So again, adding these two classifications was important. They are clinically relevant and will be very helpful for us as clinicians when we communicate to our patients. On top of the change in the nomenclature, I think it is highly relevant how the guideline now recognized the enormous impact of SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure, providing a class 1 indication in HEF-REF and a class 2A indication in heart failure with mildly reduced EF and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And lastly, so I don't make this a monologue here. And again, this might be my personal bias and passion, but I would like to underscore that patients with advanced heart failure who wish to prolong survival should be referred to a team specializing in heart failure. Timely referral for heart failure specialty care is recommended for advanced heart failure patients. And this is nicely emphasized in the guideline. So once a heart failure specialty team receives these patients. They can review the heart failure management, assess suitability for advanced heart failure therapies, and then recommend palliative care, including palliative inotropes when consistent with the patient's goals of cares. So again, so many excitement advances. I, I would really just love to hear the opinion of everyone else.
6: Wonderful, Vanessa. I mean, this is Rob again. I think you so nicely summarized key points around nomenclature, how that directly translates to medical therapies for those different groups and pulling in these important components as we treat really from a holistic way, the the patient all from early stage all the way through end-stage disease and, and pulling in palliative care importantly on the earlier side, having these conversations so we can really align with their goals. And I might just compliment uh, your really nice comments with a couple of key points that I felt were really underscored in this document. One around the treatment of comorbidities. I think as certainly the medication management becomes more complicated and more exciting for our patients with heart failure, there's also this entire armamentarium of additional approaches we can use to treat their comorbidities. So I'll highlight one uh, that's underscored in the guideline update focused on iron deficiency. And I would specifically note that it's iron deficiency regardless of anemia status. So you might remember from your earliest days of training in school where we used to think, oh, if a patient is anemic, we think about iron deficiency. But it's so important to realize that many patients with heart failures have iron deficiency even if they're not anemic. And now the guidelines give us a class 2A recommendation to use IV iron for these patients. That IV iron has been shown to improve functional status and quality of life, and we await other larger outcome studies. But I think a nice example of where we think of different pills that that we might need to consider starting for all of our patients, how we can complement that by treating comorbidities and important ones like iron deficiency. And the the guideline goes through further comorbidities, but I would just highlight that one. Maybe I'll hand it over to you, Anna. What are some of the key things in this context that you'd like to highlight?
7: Thanks, Rob. I'm always so afraid that You're going to say what exactly I'm going to say or I'm going to say what you're going to say because we say jinx so often, but um, hopefully I'll, I'll be able to add something that's, you know, sort of more of a personal take as well. I really love that these guidelines show us beyond the shadow of a doubt that patients with reduced ejection fraction and the clinical syndrome of heart failure should be expected to be on multiple drugs to derive maximal benefit of guideline-directed medical therapy. And I think, you know, we get this oftentimes where we say, oh, you know, patients don't like to be on so many medicines. Should we start one medicine first and then uptight treat? And this comes up all the time for all of us in clinic. And I think what these guidelines really are emphasizing is that, you know, we should help develop that expectation that they should be on multiple drugs in order for them to derive that benefit. And so obviously this includes the ARNI, this includes beta blockers that are evidence-based, this includes MRAs, and this now includes SGLT2 inhibitors, as Vanessa so nicely laid out. And then I think, you know, kind of just following that path, finally after years, we have recommendations for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction that are specific. Again, Vanessa, you have so nicely laid out. That the, there's this emphasis on SGLT2 inhibitors and where they fit in with our armamentarium. And, but now we see that they have received that 2A recommendation. MREs, RNEs as well have a class 2B recommendation. And though we may kind of think about, well, you know, is it a class 2A? Is it a class 2B? What's the level of evidence, et cetera? I think the very fact that we have specific recommendations for heart failure and preserved ejection fraction is just. So exciting and so representative of how fast our field is moving. So I, I just kind of love that. And then also these guidelines nicely kind of recognize that there's this entity of when the ejection fraction improves and it calls that out and it says, yes, this is a thing that happens, right? And when it does, we need to continue medicines. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction with guideline-directed medical therapy. And Vanessa, you already laid that out really nicely, but those are also my thoughts. So maybe I should say jinx with you. Um, And then maybe the last thing I'll say is I love the emphasis on requiring evidence for increased filling pressures. I was actually thinking about you guys today in clinic, knowing that you know we were going to do this. And I so often we see these patients who are labeled with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and then when you look for objective evidence of increased filling pressures they are not necessarily present. And so I think this emphasis, at least for me and how it's impacted me, is that I'm more concrete about looking for that objective evidence, either by natriuretic peptide levels being elevated or diastolic function being abnormal on imaging, or of course, if they've had a right heart catheterization and invasive testing or some sort of hemodynamic measurement. But I'm a little bit more concrete, I have to say, about saying, okay, where is that evidence? How am I going to write that down? How does that play in their syndrome? And so I really like that the guidelines have called our attention to that space.
2: Thank you so much, all of you. Those points are just absolutely helpful. And just thinking about things like SGL2 inhibitors and iron deficiency and heart failure as cornerstones of treatment remind me about being an internist first as the bedrock of our cardiovascular practice. And that really dovetails with also how we approach patients. As you said, Dr. Lala, we have to help them Develop the expectation that they're going to be on multiple medications as part of their comprehensive care for their heart success, I should say. You know, this has been a really wonderful roundtable discussion so far. So let me swivel my chair over to you, Q. What are some of the hot takes and things that stood out for you in these heart failure guidelines?
0: Thanks so much, Dan. And, you know, i just like the second where my two awesome COVID editors have mentioned and share my excitement for these new heart failure guidelines and what what an awesome discussion so far. In addition to what's been discussed, I'd like to highlight two areas that really stood out to me in the new guidelines as well. The first was the expanded guidance on the evaluation and management of amyloid heart disease. We have a better understanding of the prevalence of amyloid cardiomyopathy, the important drivers of the disease, and how to diagnose it. It is so great to see a digestible strategy for clinicians that we can take and implement to help our patients. First, they help us recognize the constellation of signs and symptoms that should prompt us to at least consider amyloid cardiomyopathy. As we know, if we don't think about the diagnosis, we'll often never identify it. So naming things like carpal tunnel syndrome, spinal stenosis, and autonomic sensory polyneuropathy are helpful. The guidelines then provide great guidance on the importance of assessing for monocortal light change in the serum and urine and following that up with bone scintigraphy if none, are found to evaluate for transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. I'm fortunate to work with Dr. Sadia Khan and my fellows clinic, and as part of our clinic, we offer genetic testing and provide genetic counseling for patients when there is a potential genetic variant that is causing disease. Specifically for amyloid, it is so important for us to identify the TTR gene in our patients, if present, to help with genetic counseling and family screening if found. As far as treatment, we're fortunate to now have tafamidis as a class 1-indicated treatment for TTR amyloid in those patients with NYHA class 1 to 3 symptoms. You know, I was also impressed to see the value assessment of our different treatments for heart failure and was struck by the low value rating for tafamidis. It's really helpful and important for us to understand the context of value as we increasingly have effective treatments for our patients with heart failure. So, you know, so many advancements and exciting things going on in the guidelines for amyloid And I think that the last piece about cost and value actually segues nicely into the second highlight that I'd like to mention, which is the class one recommendation to consider the social determinants of health for our patients. To read exactly from the guideline recommendation, the committee says, quote, in patients presenting with heart failure, a thorough history and physical should be obtained and performed to identify cardiac and non-cardiac disorders, lifestyle and behavior factors, and social determinants of health that might cause or accelerate the development of progression of heart failure. They go on to say, in vulnerable patient populations at risk for health disparities, heart failure risk assessments and multidisciplinary management strategies should target both known risk for cardiovascular disease and social determinants of health as a means toward elimination of disparate heart failure outcomes. I mean, I don't have to explain to the CardioNode audience how ubiquitous health disparities are, and particularly for heart failure. It really warmed my heart, no pun intended to see this call to action the guidelines because it reminds us that we each must assess and try to address the social determinants of health if we're going to provide contemporary care for our patients with heart failure in 2022 and beyond.
7: Gosh, Q, maybe I could just jump on right after you spoke. I think you're so on point as usual and really articulated so nicely this emphasis on healthcare disparities. I mean, it needs to be called out and it was called out. And again, as Rob said earlier, we're indebted to this writing group chaired by Dr. Heidenreich and, and Dr. Boscourt for really putting some of this forward. You know, I think this is gonna have a huge impact on our field in general because it, it needed this calling out. I think there's this acknowledgement, as you so nicely mentioned, of vulnerable populations. And quite frankly, I almost took this as a call to action for all of us. To identify risk factors, to identify those social determinants of health that play into the development, the prevention, the treatment, the access to heart failure care. Rob mentioned this earlier, like looking at a patient more holistically, you know, traditionally we think of that as like, oh, this is integrative medicine. No, it's looking at our patients as human beings. Where do they live? What is the kind of access they have to food? Are they able to get to their appointments? Are they being included in clinical trials? Why or why not? It's a call to action for all of us to be more cognizant of these issues and then to really try and fill these gaps and try to come up with solutions to mitigate these disparities. You know, one thing that comes to mind to me that's dear to, to Rob and I is this notion of we often see patients admitted to the hospital, for example, you know, we'll hear the first line is, oh, patient was non-compliant with their meds. And it's it's really about finding more about our patient. What is the context in which they were not taking their meds? Was it that they weren't able to? Did they lose their job? What were the barriers to that adherence? To me, you know, just to reiterate, I, I took this as a call to action. I think calling it out is is so incredibly important. And I'm I'm optimistic that with all of us more cognizant, more aware, we will make the effort needed. To better understand our patients, where they're coming from, and then how to bridge gaps and develop strategies for them to have the access they need, the treatment they need, and the education they need, hopefully to have better outcomes.
6: Yeah, I mean, thanks so much. And, and maybe I would just make one brief comment around this. Uh, Q, I think you so nicely stated pulling in the, the social determinants of health. Where clinically, you'll have a patient in front of you, and while you might be thinking, "Oh, I need to get quadruple therapy on board." the foundational piece is really often working with the patient to understand what are these social determinants of health and how can they be addressed before we can even think about some of these medicines that are so important uh, in other ways for those individuals. And I think this is the perfect group to have this discussion because the CardioNerds team has done an amazing job of taking frameworks or whether it's focusing on disparities and then thinking, how do we improve that for our heart failure community? And I would really give them kudos in the context of the fit trialist activities in the Paraglide program, where now you have cardio nerds members that are really part of a study team focused on recruitment of diverse populations, and it's working. It's making a difference. We're seeing increased numbers of recruitment and recruiting participants from groups that historically have been underrepresented in trials. So I love this, this context as Q has taken us through of disparities and his expertise in this space. And I would also make one comment from a JCF perspective. I think what I've enjoyed so much is learning from each other. Like we all bring unique expertise and I've learned so much from Ashish and Q and Vanessa around each of these aspects is they really have expertise in this space and share that with us as a journal team that has really changed our mission and aligned this as part of our core values focused on DDI and belonging that I think are really also central components to cardio and summarized in the guidelines. Wow, this has just been such a
1: phenomenal discussion. And from my vantage point, there are two things that have become abundantly clear. Number one, the new heart failure guidelines are a very exciting document with so many important clinically relevant and very practical takeaways that we can apply for our patient care. And number two, the, the relationships within this JCF family are just so special. And I think family is just the right word for it. And on that note, I'd like to turn a little bit towards looking at JCF. Dr. Mentz, as the editor in chief, and and all of you, what you've cultivated both externally in your mission to disseminate high impact science, but then also internally in cultivating this community within has been really fun to watch. Let me start off by asking you, Dr. Mentz, what has been surprising about your role at JCF and what do you do it again? It's it's so obvious that this has become such a core part of your identity. Even when we had our video on in your backdrop, there were a few plants in the table behind you, and then also a JCF journal in print. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what that experience has meant for you.
6: Yeah, thanks so much, Ahmed. Now, you know, I would say what surprised me the most is really how incredibly refreshing, fulfilling, uh, and empowering it is to work with such brilliant people. And as I first gave Anu the call and said, would, would you be willing to partner with me on this? And we started to put together this team Um Gosh, it's it's just been such a phenomenal experience to learn from each other, to bring together individuals from all different diverse backgrounds, whether the type of trading they had, the specialty, where they live, um, I think a number of other domains of diversity, uh, and then learn from each other, challenge each other, and have this bedrock of a a core foundation of high-quality science. But how can we do things differently and better? In order to really impact our patients and improve their lives. And for us, I think some of the really exciting things that we've been able to to do are things like double-blind reviews. Let's make the peer review process based on the quality, not necessarily the names that are coming on that paper. Really focusing on the multidisciplinary aspect, having important nursing papers, PharmD papers, ideas around early career training, really spotlighting that Uh, has just been so invigorating for us learning from each other in that process. And then it really is this context of having patients and caregivers at the center. So launching that at the journal and then working with our team. And you know, we all have so many meetings, but I'll say on our Thursday journal meeting, as we gather to share some of what's going on with their lives, to discuss the articles that are coming out and then to strategize together. It really is like the most refreshing time of the week to think, how can we do things better so that, that really takes that science to our patients, to our other individuals within our clinical community. And it's really been that, I mean, we say a lot of this JCF family, but it, it really has become a family. And I think we continue to grow and learn from each other, challenge each other. And I think Anu and others have really been champions of driving wellness. Uh, Andrew Sauer similarly on this front of, of how can we as individuals Uh, become better doctors, researchers, disseminators of this research, but also better humans, and really learn from each other. And I think at the end of the day, that's what's been most rewarding for me is really learning from each other and having so much fun while we do this and being willing to challenge each other to how can we do better and how can we do better for our patients.
2: Thank you so much for that, Dr. Manson. I have to echo what Ahmed said earlier about the JCF family. You know, we have been working with you and Dr. Lala in various capacities. And we just see this, the group that you have, the family style relationship that you have, it's just so important and so humanizing and personalizing and just really wonderful to see. And it really serves as a model for the cardiovascular community at large. We just love it. We love to emulate that. And it's now my turn to ask Dr. Lala what has been the most rewarding thing about it Your involvement with JCF.
7: Can I just say ditto for what Rob said, or no? I have to say my own thing. Thanks, Dan, for for asking. I, you know, Rob invited me on on what feels like sort of this ride of a lifetime thus far, and I am indebted to him for his receptivity beyond all else, and of course his incredible leadership. I think our friendship and the connection amongst the team and the you know, JCF, family, extended family, we're all family, is really celebrated because the underlying intent is for us to all be better versions of ourselves in service ultimately of our patients and our community at large. And you know what you think about this, because it's definitely war work for sure. There's no there's no question about that. But it doesn't feel that way. I and mean, and why is that? I think it's because. You know, the work that we're doing, again, I already mentioned this this notion of constructively disrupting traditional paradigms in scientific publishing and, and really kind of, you know, as cheesy as it may sound, listening to our colleagues and learning from each other and building those connections to advance science, we're, we're ultimately reminded of our purpose, right? So our purpose is to improve the lives of our patients, ultimately. And, of course, their loved ones, their support systems, and our community. And I think when we are, in general, aligned with a sense of purpose, we kind of get into that flow state. Uh, Amit and Dan, I'm sure you probably feel similarly with cardio darts It's undoubtedly a ton of work, but I'd, I'd venture to bet that you feel similarly where you do enter that flow state as well. And you drive up those connections and you learn so much from the people around you. And I think this is, you know, really the beauty of life—the greater sense of purpose we feel in anything we do just makes life richer, funner, more meaningful. And um, I'm sort of indebted to this opportunity for allowing me to feel this way, and hopefully contribute more and more as time goes on.
3: That was wonderful to hear. You know, I, hearing all of that, I've kind of embarked on my advanced heart failure training this year. Um, I've definitely been most excited to see the new JCF issues come out each month. I've loved all the innovations you guys have made. Many of them you've mentioned already, but things like, you know, the early career spotlight was great to read as I start my early career in a few months. The JCF Ignite section, the community you guys have been creating that we've been talking about has been, you know, almost inf- infectious, you know, through social media and and the kind of outreach you guys have been doing. And then honestly, even the way the Heartfeeler guidelines themselves, you guys d- disseminated them with kind of the top takeaways with Dr. Gittleson's piece and then doing things like this podcast so it's all been very exciting and you know happy to be able to do this podcast with you guys so to finish up q a v you guys have all been the fit members of the jcf family and uh, q and and v you're about to start a, an incredibly fun and rewarding year a you'll be joining me and on the early career side so if you guys don't mind let us in our audience know kind of what have been some of the best parts about being part of the jcf family as a fit
0: Well, thank you so much for again for the opportunity to chat today about the guidelines. And, you know, I think that this has been just an amazing professional experience for me to have Anu and Rob at the helm of a journal that really cares about you as an entire person has been so rewarding. You know, I think one of the really magical things about the Journal of Cardiac Failure is that it really centers the patient in everything that it does. And we really have, as, as Robin Anu mentioned, become a family. I look to, you know, my co fellow editors, Ashish and Vanessa all the time, you know, not just for professional stuff, but even personal life things. Um, we've become friends. And I think that it's really the ethos that's been created from the top down from through Robin Anu. And I'm just so excited to, to continue this journey with the journal and so appreciative that they've included me along, along for the ride.
5: You know, beyond just getting inside look at how an awesome journal works, you know, which has become a publishing powerhouse, it's taken its rightful place as the definitive go-to publication for Heart Failure Science. Beyond just working in this incredible organization, I've had a chance to meet such a diverse group of people. You know, we have editors all over the world. We have not not just all over the country, but we have editors from Canada, Ireland. Spain, Japan. And so we get these unique perspectives uh, on how cardiovascular disease is managed and how heart failure care is practiced all over the world. We have associate editors who are pharmacists, who are in nursing and nurse practitioners. And we have co patient editors and champions on our editorial board. So, you know, I've had a chance to meet people with so many unique perspectives and approach this disease and this area of science in such specific ways and that's enriched me professionally and personally and it's truly changed and improved the way i I practice and and then the people i work most closely with other four people on this call today rob anu vanessa and q it's been an incredible experience working with them rob's leadership has been awesome and he's become a real role model um, I You know, I sit right outside Dr. Lala's office and I work with her all the time. But getting to work with her in this space has been a really rewarding experience because I, I get to see a different side of her. And she too is just an incredible role model. And every day I'm fascinated about how she's able to wear so many hats and do so many things. And I want to model my career on hers and Rob's. And then my partners in crime, Vanessa and Q, they are now lifelong friends and just it's it's the people. It's the people behind the scenes and it's been a really rewarding experience.
4: It, it's so hard to add to that. And I think this is what's, you know, the beauty of this team. I think all I have to say is, you know, one, I'm, I'm forever going to be grateful to Rob and Anu for including me in this team. One of the greatest things that the JCF family has is that sense of belonging, it's making you feel like you always belong. Like I, I forgot who asked the question and I think it was Amit when you asked Rob, you know, it's it's a lot of work. Would you do it again? And I think, you know, yes, it is a lot of work, but because you're always inspired and you're always motivated, it's it's work that doesn't feel like work. It just becomes a pleasure. We always joke around when we have our meetings on Thursdays that we are at a sense of loss if we can't attend to them. You know, while on one side we have Zoom fatigue so often lately, that is the only Zoom meeting that a lot of us don't want to miss out on. And and for me, it has been such a huge lesson on leadership skills, you know, building teams, on top of everything that goes behind the scenes of the editorial board process, but I think it's just, in general, what I would like the world to be like. And, and I think I, I would want the world to be a little bit more like the JCF family. And if I would just summarize it in a sentence, I am just privileged, fortunate, and honored to be part of a team that inspires me because every single individual on the team Rob, Anu, Quentin, Ashish, and many people that are not on this call inspire me, challenge me to be a, a better person, and, and just motivate me to grow every single day. And, and I'm grateful for that.
1: Gosh, this has been so amazing. I can't imagine a better way for a cardiac to spend his or her time than to nerd out over heart failure guidelines with such an amazing panel of discussants and friends. I want to start off by thanking Mark Belkin for joining this discussion as host and helping us to plan. Not just this episode, but so many other facets of nerds that we've been able to put out over these past few months. Thank you so much to Ashish Korea, Quentin Newman, Vanessa Bloomer. You guys, it's just been so incredible to watch all of the great work you guys are doing as fit editors for JCF, but also in several other domains, just in your own right as individuals. You guys are an inspiration and and really just nerds through and through. And Dr. Mansarkalala, I don't even know where to start to thank uh, you both—not just for your time here today in helping us understand these guidelines, but then also all of your constant support and mentorship through multiple programs. And I will mention for the audience to use this episode as the bedrock, the prelude, the preamble for the Cardioid's upcoming decipher the guidelines series, which will be. Many, many question-answer podcasts that'll help really dive into the
7: nuances and details
1: of the document. So thank you everyone for your time and, and the
6: education today.
7: Thank you guys so, so much.
6: Thanks so much, Ben. Really enjoyed it. That's so great.
7: So I've got to ask, what's, what's
5: the story behind hashtag tax lady? <laughs> it's the best story. What's, this is in the chat. What's going on? <laughs> so we have many chat groups jcf related and jcf adjacent chat groups and quentin vanessa and i were planning to do a recording for uh acc video series and i he meant to send a very specific text message to vanessa and me but he sent it to a much larger group with luminaries in the field you know the pillars of our profession
0: um, i sent it to everyone on the know. entire editorial board I'll, like, be, oh, I'll be
5: there in a second. I'll just wait. Like, I'll be there in a second. I'm dealing yeah. with the tax lady. <laughs> the
4: text said, "You know, I'm, I'm a couple of minutes late. I'm just here with the tax lady."
5: <laughs> and then we're like, "What? Didn't manage for the, for that group?"
4: Yeah,
0: are Yeah, and they texted in the other group, and they were like, "Did you intend to send that?" And I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> there
4: was silence. There was an awkward silence for a while there. And in the meantime, we're just like meeting, just like laughing. Like, what do we do about it? Like, do we just right. like lie, ignore it? And we're like, no, no, this this cannot be ignored. Like, <laughs>
7: we have Can everyone
1: just slowly pretend like it never happened. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>